Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. The uh, testimonies that you saw right there about freedom, I just want to tag on just a moment. Uh, our church has been alive for 15 years and a few months, and out of all that we've done, the most feedback we've ever gotten about any ministry that we've ever offered is right here in Freedom. Over uh, 200 of adults in this church have been involved in either putting on the freedom or going through the freedom experience. And I want to tell you this about it so that uh, if you're on the fence, maybe I'll tip you over to the side of engagement. Um, you know this, everything good in life takes commitment, right? You know that, right? Everything good in life takes commitment. So let me tell you what freedom is not. Freedom is not something you show up for and then you get this massive return for your effort. That's not what this is. This is a commitment you make for about 12 weeks to show up regularly, do a little bit of work, and then when you make that kind of commitment, the return is pretty profound. And so what we're hearing people say consistently is, is God has shown me more of what he wants for me in my life. They're also saying things like things that used to really hold me back, have now been broken and I'm walking more freely. People have said, I'm walking like I'm lighter, 20 pounds lighter, emotionally speaking, all kinds of cool things. It's not weird, it's just different than the stuff that we normally do. Here's something cool about God. God's not weird, the Holy Spirit's not weird, People are weird, all right? And so because of that, sometimes people hear experiences like this and like, eh, I don't know what to do. Let me tell you what you do. You go for a few weeks, if you don't like it, you don't show up. That's what you do. But you make a commitment to go long enough to see, and I think if you do that, if you do that, I think it'll be worth your effort. And the reason we offer programs like Freedom is, is our church is uniquely called by God. Our mission is to help families in North Cincinnati have their best opportunity to become fully developing followers of Jesus. And we all have things that hold us back. And our prayer for you, what we want for you, we don't want from you. What we want for you is for you to walk in the freedom that God has for you and to shake off any lies or anything that's holding you back. And that's actually why we're beginning this year with 21 days of prayer. This is the third and final week of the official 21 days of prayer message series that we're doing. And I want you to find in your Bible, if you don't mind, Exodus chapter 32. We're going to park in the Old Testament for a bit today. But let me talk to you about something also that you know. Not only do you know that all the great things in life take commitment, marriage, raising kids, getting a degree, losing weight, all the great things in life take commitment. The other thing you know is that life can be incredibly messy. So when Jesus was on the earth, people watched him engage his heavenly father, our heavenly father, in ways that left him incredibly profoundly struck emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. And they wanted to know what was going on because life around them is messy. Life around us is messy. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about some of that messiness in life in the most meaningful, I believe, and I think heart-impacting ways. So on February 23rd, coming up, is for us an opportunity to hear from a lady whose name is Jackie Leggett. Now, I have a picture of her husband, Chris, up here on the screen. You don't know this guy. Some of you actually met him years ago. I grew up with Chris. Chris was a missionary in Africa. They crea created an educational center where they took women that had been, well, really, they had been on the bad receiving end of all kinds of injustice, largely in prison, uneducated, and they started training these women in things like micro-business and computer technology and how to read and all this sort of thing. And they had a thriving ministry in this country. And literally one day as he's walking out of the education center that he built, Al-Qaeda, seriously, the guys you hear about in the news, tried to kidnap him. He fought them off. They shot him and he was dead. I watched my, one of my best friends growing up, story on CNN, heartbroken. Here we are 10 years later. This guy's wife is going to be with us in service on February 23rd and share the story of how God's grace came alongside her and her family in the most profound ways. And I think it'll encourage your heart. I want you to make a commitment to be here on February 23rd, second service or first. It'll be identical. She has a book where she's going to share her story as well. But I want you to hear from somebody who we made an investment in years ago, and God has been incredibly faithful, even though the story can be incredibly hard to hear. And then the very next week, March 1, we're going to hear the story of Debbie Morris. Now, years ago, there was a movie made that got all kinds of awards called Dead Man Walking. Here's a picture. It starred Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon. And it's about the Sean Penn character, a guy whose last name was Willie, who went on a crime spree, killed a girl, raped a few others. And while the movie here doesn't tell a lot of the backstory, there's only some, flat bash, some flashbacks, uh, the the, the crime behind the story of this guy who gets put on death row, who's uh, befriended by Sister Helen Prejean, a nun, 
who experiences some God stuff in the story. The crime behind that actually happened to a lady named Debbie Morris. And when this movie came out, she didn't know it was coming out, it surfaced all the pain that happened to her when she was 16 years old. And she had to rediscover life with God in a new way, what it is to walk in forgiveness and not be shackled by what happened to her. She wrote a book called Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. There you go. And Debbie Morris is going to be with us on March 1. You're going to have a chance to hear her story as well. It's also a story of incredible darkness and messiness in life but the power of God that shows up in grace. Now, we don't do this much promotion for events around here, but the entire series we're going to be involved in is a series called Grace That Is Greater because I believe that God would like to this year wash grace over your life and help set you free. It's part of why we do freedom. It's part of why we're doing prayer. It's part of why we're going to leverage our time and energy in these directions to hear these stories because what happened in their lives, unique to their situation, God wants to show up and be a part of your life to speak in power and grace as well. And not just you, people you care about. So I want you to come. I want you to invite some friends to be with you. They're going to hear a life-changing story. It's going to look like normal church around here, except instead of a normal message, you're going to hear from these folks as well. And then after service, you'll have a chance to say hi to them. So the reason we're talking about this is because our Heavenly Father loves us so much. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die for us, and He promised us a life that John chapter 10, verse 10 describes this way. It's an abundant life, but too many followers of Jesus don't live a life that we would use the adjective abundant with. One of the reasons is, I believe, is because we leave unutilized one of the most powerful tools God has given His children, us, the tool of prayer we leave on the shelf, dusty and underutilized. So for the last 21 days around here, we've been simply asking a question. What would it look like if you set out just three to five minutes a day? Not 50, not an hour, not six hours, three to five minutes a day to make a time and a place. So you set an appointment for three to five minutes a day where you consistently this year talk to God in prayer. So I've been talking to you about the power of doing this. This is what the disciples saw in Jesus in Mark chapter 1, where it says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. And the way Jesus prayed and talked to God about the messiness of life, about what's going on in him, so impacted the disciples that they asked him one day, not teach us to preach, not teach us how to do miracles. They asked him, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? This is what it says in Luke 11.1. One. one day Jesus went, was praying in a certain place. He had an appointment. He was keeping it. He went and played in a cer- prayed in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I told you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that if you want to embarrass the average Christian, and we don't, so we're not going to raise hands here, but if you ask them, and if they were totally honest about their engagement with prayer for most of us, It is woefully lacking. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what it costs us to not engage prayer. We don't know what we're giving up. It's not mechanically spelled out to us. If you pray three to five minutes a day, here's exactly what God's going to do. And if you don't, here's exactly what he's not going to do. That's not not what we get. What we get is both a a command and an invitation from our Heavenly Father to pray. And when we pray, dramatic things happen. Which brings us to our conversation today. The reason some people don't pray is they've tried it and they found out it doesn't work in the way that they thought it would work. Sometimes you've prayed for things and people you know have prayed for things and they prayed really hard and they were very sincere and they prayed a long time and they did it as faithfully as they knew they should And the thing they prayed for did not happen. And in their mind, how could a good God not engage this issue over here and make his goodness show up in that place? When I used to teach high school, and the thing I loved about teaching high school was kids were brutally honest with me in their feedback. So I would do the chapel program at school, and sometimes when I would preach at chapel, they would say, Mr. Hodges, you killed it today. I was like, thank you very much. I knew it was sincere. Right? As a teenager, they don't lie like that. They'll lie about what they did the night before. They ain't going to lie about feedback, right? And then other times I'd preach here. Also, I know sometimes I'd preach and they would say, I'll quote them here. Mr. Hodges, you suck today. Did you have a fight with your wife last night? What's wrong? You're a little off today. So I got profound feedback. But on occasion, when you would talk to them about prayer, here's what they would say. Even at 
15, 16, 17 years old. Here's what he would say. Yeah, I prayed about that thing with my parents, and they still got a divorce. Why would God do that, Mr. Hodges? In really, like, sad moments? I prayed about that thing that happened to me by that person that I didn't choose, right? Like, that's not the words they used. It was usually much more graphic and direct and uh, tear-filled. Like, I prayed about that. Why doesn't God take that memory away? Or, or why did God allow that to happen anyway? Right? Or I prayed about my mom's illness. I remember sitting in my office with kids, and mom had passed away, and I prayed about God's illness. And you prayed with me, Mr. Rogers, about that just a few months ago, and she still died. And then if people are honest, they would honestly reflect and say things like that. There are some incredibly awesome things that happened in my life I never prayed for. And the good stuff still happened. And they're left asking a very simple question. Does it really make a difference at all if I pray? Really? And then you read nice little Christian slogans. And they're, they're great Christian slogans. And they're true. We're actually going to talk about it today. And one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, kind of uh, makes this a highlight of his conversation about prayer. He says, we don't pray to so much to change things. We pray because prayer changes us. And that's a true statement. But we're still left with the question, does prayer change things? So our story today from Exodus 32 is one of those that when you read it, it leaves you with some unresolved tensions. And today, what we're going to do is going to be adults. And I'm not going to provide you easy answers necessarily, but I want to introduce some tensions that I think if you'll slow down just a little bit, you can hold these unresolved tensions, and when you hold them, they'll benefit you. Now, if you're a bit of an engineer type or, an, or a little bit of an accountant like me, that's some of my background, uh, I don't like remainders. When I was trying to balance the books for the churches I used to help manage, I didn't like when I balanced the books for there to be any money left over. Even like, I remember one month, I was trying to close a month out and there was three cents left over for this church I was helping. I was like, Where's, where does this three cents go? And at the end, I had to just write off three cents, and I was so frustrated so much that I still remember, remember it to this. I don't like leftovers. Somebody remember when we used to do long division? We don't do that anymore because education's gone to the dogs. But we used to do long division, and what you would do is you'd like three goes into 16, five times R1, remainder of one. So if you don't like remainders, this is going to be a challenge for you today. That's okay. It's Okay. Life is messy. Life with God in a broken world, from our perspective, it can still be very messy. It's real pain sometimes. But I think that if we'll rally around the discipline of a certain time, a certain place, and a certain plan, which is what we've been talking about when it comes to prayer, three to five minutes a day, the language in Exodus 32 can help us with some of the remaining questions. So we're going to tell you this story. We're going to read it. But just to give you the background in case you don't have this story in your ready recall, here's what's happened. A few months before Exodus 32, the children of Israel have been released from bondage and slavery in Egypt. There's about some two to four million people, theologians um, suggest, are there. Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. I'm not letting your people go. So 10 plagues rain down on Egypt, horrific things. At the end of it, Pharaoh is so frustrated that he lets Moses go. And they get to the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, and they start chasing the children of Israel. But God opens up the Red Sea, and the children walk through the river on dry ground, or through the water on dry ground. They get to the other side. And about the time Pharaoh's army's coming through, the waters rain down on them and drowns them all that obstacle is defeated. Not only that, but the moment they begin to walk out of Egypt, these rich Egyptians just give the children of Israel earrings of gold and silver and all kinds of precious metals. So they don't just leave with freedom, they leave with some bling. And they're doing really, really, really well. And then God rescues them from Pharaoh's army. And then they're not really sure where to go. So by day, God gives them a a pillar of smoke, like a column of smoke, and wherever the smoke goes, they follow. And at night, if they're to walk, the fire lights up so they can see it. And when the smoke and the fire stops, they stop. So incredible provision. And then they get hungry. And so God rains down food from heaven. And then they get thirsty, and water comes from a rock. And this is an incredible season to be alive because God's just showing up. 
So one day God says to the children of Israel on their journey months in, which by the way, months and miles in, the Bible actually says that none of their shoes showed any sign of wear. So God's showing up in the big and the little stuff, all right? So months in, God says, hey, I want you all to go up on Mount Sinai and I want to talk to you. And the children of Israel go, wait, 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 wait a second, Moses. Um, we've seen what God could do. He's a pretty scary dude. Like, like we're grateful, but that's scary. We don't want to actually go meet with God. So why don't you go up and represent us? And Moses is like, okay, y'all stay down here. I'll go up and talk to God. I'll be back in a few days. So he goes up and while he's up there, here's what the children of Israel do. <clears throat> Boy, Moses is taking a while. He's probably dead. And Moses is dead. We're alone. So they go to Moses, it's number two in command, Aaron. Aaron, would you take the gold from our earrings and the bracelets and all the stuff we got from Egypt, and would you melt it all down, and would you fashion us a golden calf so that we could worship the real God that brought us out of Egypt? So plagues, Red Sea, Pharaoh's army drowned, food, direction, and just in a few days, <laughs> they've forgotten it all. I don't know. I, I, I want to throw stones at them, but... If you reflect about all that the Lord has done for us and some of the silly things that we come up with, it begins to put some context around it. So anyway, Moses is up there on the mountain talking to the Lord. And down south of the mountain, the children of Israel are dancing and singing around this golden calf. And they're declaring, we worship you, old golden calf, the one who brought us out of Egypt. It's an incredible, weird scene. It's worse than anything that happens during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It's all that goes with that. It reminds me of that Bible verse because they're drinking and dancing that tequila makes your clothes come off. You know, it's all that stuff's going on. And then the Lord says to Moses while he's talking to Moses about life, this is the moment where Moses is going to get the Ten Commandments. This is a big conversation. This is life-changing. This is earth-changing stuff. The Lord says to Moses, hey, there's some stuff going on down there. And we're going to read these passages, and I'm going to tell you, hundreds of bottles of ink have been spilt trying to explain these passages. We're not going to finish it, but we're going to go a good way towards that. So here's what the Bible says. Exodus 32, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down off the mountain, because, look at this, I love this language. Your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. So God says to Moses, they're your people, you brought them Egypt, out of Egypt, they've become corrupt. This is me saying to my wife, what has your daughter done? And she's like, my daughter, she looks like you. Look at her baby picture, looks just like you. Yeah, but she acts like you, right? That conversation didn't go any good for Jill and I, but this is how the Lord starts the conversation. Moses, they're your people, you brought them up. I want you to go down because they have become corrupt. That's putting it lightly, He's kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek to some degree. Look at, look at what it says. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Quick. Months of engagement, a few days, and they believe God's not listening anymore. God doesn't care. God's gone. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people the Lord says to Moses. And they are a stiff-necked people. This is a nice way of saying they're incredibly difficult to work with, right? Uh, they don't want to turn. The image here is, is that you're trying to guide a horse and you have the reins and you're trying to, but you can't get them to go in the right direction. So then he says, now leave me alone. So Moses, get out of here, go down to them. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. This is not a good day when the Lord's sitting up in some mountain somewhere talking about your future using the language destroy. That's not a good day, right? And then he says to Moses, this is so enticing. Moses, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll make you a great nation. So you're a descendant of Abraham. I promised Abraham from Abraham would be a great nation. I blessed the whole world through Abraham. And I can keep my promise, Moses. I'm just going to wipe everybody else but you and you and I will have a fresh start. Brand new beginning, Moses, me and you, right here. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Moses is a better man than me, because that sounds like a pretty good deal. All the heartache gone, all the trouble gone. People have already been difficult with Moses. 
I mean, they've already been running them down. People are starting on, you know, number two in command, number three in command. I've already conspired a little bit. I mean, it's, I would have thought for a minute. But Moses does something here that ultimately points to what Jesus is going to do for us. When Jesus is going to stand between God and humanity and make a way that is special and beautiful and right in the middle of an awful lot of ugliness. Moses does that here. Moses serves in the biblical role here in the next few verses of a prophet and a priest who stands between God and and man and intercedes, connects them in meaningful ways, speaks to the people for God, speaks for the people to God. So here's what Moses says. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. It's the Lord, his God. Very personal here. So the pronouns here really play a part in the story. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? They're your people. You brought them out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. So in one sentence, Moses has corrected the Lord twice. I think it's dangerous ground. I don't know. This is like all kinds of theological red flags are going off. Wait, God said they're your people. You said, no, they're yours. Again, Jill and I have been here a few times. But that's just me and Jill. We're talking God and a major player in the Bible. All right? So uh, why should your anger burn against your people who you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Then he says, and he's going to like appeal to God's sense of pride, perhaps. He says, why should the Egyptians say it was with an evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? So if you kill everybody, here's what your enemies are going to say, God. You never had a heart for them anyway. You just got them out alone so you can take them out. So they're they're having a pretty serious discussion here. Big implications. So then he says, look at this. So turn from your fierce anger. Relent. In the New International Version, it's the translation from the Old Testament Hebrew to English that we're reading. Relent, it might say in your Bible, repent, or it could say change your mind. All means the same thing. In fact, the simplest definition for the word repent in your Bible is to change direction. You're going here, God. Why don't you relent? Why don't you repent and go in a different direction and turn from your fierce anger to relent and do not bring disaster on your people. And then he says, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Israel is the grandson of Abraham who has 12 sons. The entire nation begins with them 400 years before this event. You begin with 12 sons and a couple of patriarchs, and we've got two to four million people now. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants this land. I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And look at verse 14. Here's where we're going to park. Then the Lord relented, some versions. Then the Lord repented. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, if you're like me and you come from a religious tradition that highly values the sovereignty of God, that is that God's all-powerful, does whatever he wants, and God's largely unchanging in all of his ways, then this passage, you have to spill a lot of ink to explain it away. So here's what people typically do. Oh, what's really going on is God's just teaching Moses. All the language is just there for Moses' benefit, but there's nothing really, really real going on here. It's all just for the point of the story. And yet, any average intelligent high schooler who reads the story as they did when I was their teacher will tell you the text doesn't read that way. It would be fine until the last sentence when the text commentator, who is Moses, by the way, actually uses the words, then the Lord relented and did not bring. So in other words, he was going to do something, but he changed his mind. That's what the narrator says. So now we have to decide whether or not this is a passage that only hints at truth or actually is truth. And now we're into all kinds of theological debate. Because if we're not careful, we'll bring a preconceived idea of how God works to a text. And then when it doesn't fit, we've got to spill lots of ink to make it go away. Today, what I'm going to do is try to let the text speak. It's the best way to do the Bible, by the way. Let the text speak and let it inform us, even if it leaves us with a little remainder, because it doesn't fit neatly. I'm going to share with you three ideas, three truths that I think if you hold them in tension, my hope is, my prayer is, 
that will actually show you the power of prayer that is implicit and intentional in this passage where Moses intercedes slash prays on the behalf of people. And when he does, God changes his course of action. I actually think that's really what happened here. Now, I hold this intention because the same author just a few months later in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, is going to write these words. Look at these. God is not human, that he should lie. And he's not a human being, that he should change his mind. And yet, just a few months before, a couple books before, a few pages in your Bible before, Exodus 32, 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So what do you do with this? It goes to the root of our question today. Do your prayers actually change anything? Or is it only changing you? I believe when you take the whole counsel of God, which is the phrase theologians use, the whole counsel of God, when you take the whole counsel of God in the scripture, it's a crystal clear answer. Your prayers and my prayers, the prayers of God's children, the saints, literally changes things. And I want to show you that in hopes that you would come to believe and then act on the belief that your prayers really matter. They matter more than just changing your attitude. Under the, under the direction of a sovereign God who is in complete control, that God has ordained and decreed that prayer would be the means by which God would intervene in this world. So it's still under the umbrella of sovereignty. We're not going to be unfaithful to sovereignty at all. But what we're going to do is we're going to blow the minds of people who have a hard time grasping just how powerful and awesome the sovereignty of God is. And more importantly, what I want to do is I want to destroy one of the most pernicious lies that the enemy has ever worked on God's people. And that is that your prayers don't really make a difference. Because can I be honest with you? The enemy is not all that concerned with your theological prowess. I mean, you can know a lot about God. In fact, the Bible says that the demons believe an awful lot about God and they tremble. So knowledge and belief itself isn't that impressive. And the enemy's not all that concerned about when you worship, you get the feels, you know? Like when we change the keys or we do a mashup like we just did, which is just awesome. I'm sitting over there just getting my bucket filled. And he, the enemy doesn't care if you get your feels. Can I tell you what rattles the cages of hell? is when God's people pray and pray as if it sounds like they believe God's listening and might act. That rattles hell. That disturbs your enemy. That's why prayer falls on hard times in the life of a believer. Because if you can get a believer to stop praying, the power dissipates too. This, by the way, doesn't come from my Pentecostal here. Heritage, I, and I grew up Pentecostal, so some people who kind of know there's like, ah, there's that Pentecostal talking again. No, this truth comes from my training as a Reformed guy at Reformed Seminary. When all the great movements of God began, not by great preaching, but by great praying. So power in the life of a believer, typically in the Bible and in church history, is united to prayer. And when prayer and great preaching and great worship come together in a moment, we have the beginnings of earth-rumbling revival. In our day and age, when the worship, I believe some of it is at the pinnacle of its expression, at least in our generation. And I know in this church you get great preaching. Ha <laughs> ha, ding dang, right? Though of the three, the one that is challenging is prayer. We don't want to embarrass anybody. But D.A. Carson said, and I shared with you, the great theologian, you want to embarrass the average believer, get him to talk candidly about the prayer life that's largely non-existent. So do your prayers really change anything? Let me give you three truths. Here we go. The purposes of God are unchanging. Now, the key word in this sentence is the purposes of God. So God's grand purpose, what he's working towards, God's will is unchanging. And here's why. Because they're rooted in a person who is unchanging. God's character does not change. The Bible says it this way. 
Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or turning. So God's character is unchanging. And because of that, the plans of God, the movements of God, they're unchanging. God's will will be accomplished. You can't stop it. In fact, if you try, it's like beating your head against a concrete wall to tear it down. Something will give, but it won't be the concrete. That's what's going to happen. That's the sovereign will of God. Every major biblical writer reaffirms these truths. Moses in Numbers 23. God is not human that he should lie and not a human being that he should change his mind. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. Here's what our Bible says. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come, I say. My purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. God's purposes will not change, do not change. What God started before the foundations of the earth does get completed. Nothing can stand in the way. And when things try to get in the way, they get corrected. They get pushed aside. When Peter says to Jesus, you're not going to be killed. They're not going to take you. I'm not going to let that happen. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. So there, when it comes to the grand purposes of God, they are rooted in time and eternity. They do not change. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 1. We spent eight weeks recently on the book of Ephesians, all six chapters. Here's how Paul words it in Ephesians 1. In him, we, also, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. And so God uses both the holy and the unholy, the righteous and the unrighteous, the redeemed and the unredeemed to accomplish his good purpose. So the purposes aren't going to change. In fact, if you want to walk in, a, in alignment with the will of God, figure out what God is doing in the world, which is not that complicated, and get on board with that. Largely what God is doing in the world is he's revealing his plan of salvation where he chooses by his spirit and by his servants to do so. And he's calling human beings into redemption. And once he does that, he calls them to help redeem the world. This is what God is doing. And when we get on board with that, we're confident that we are walking in the will of God. So while the purposes of God are unchanging, number two, God's plans, however, are unfolding. God's plans are unfolding but his purposes are not changing with the unfolding. Now, every time you share a metaphor, if you stretch it to its nth degree, it will fall short of the thing it tries to reveal. But let me just give you a, a so what to kind of illustrate this purpose versus plans thing. If you set your agenda as a family that this summer you're going to get in your car and drive to Orlando, you can make that trip in about 15 hours if you don't make a lot of stops. In our family, here's what that looks like. We're stopping for gas. Whether you have to go to the bathroom or not, get out and go to the bathroom because I'm not stopping again. So you can make it about 15 hours. So we know how we're going to go. We're going to get on 75, not far from the house. We're going to drive it all the way down. When we get to just about 200 miles north of Tampa, we're going to take the little turnpike, get to Orlando. That's how it's going to happen. That's our purpose. We generally know a plan. But if we get to Atlanta and things are really crazy, I know how to work around Atlanta. So I might change my plan, but my purpose hasn't shifted. Does that make sense? You can see that on a map. Now, again, you press that metaphor too far, it falls apart. But if you look at the story we just read, God sovereignly allows Moses, calls Moses, orchestrates Moses to stand in the place to see God talk and to hear about the children of Israel and in that place, Moses is put by the sovereignty of God to be there. And in that place, he sees the problems of the world, of his world, of the people he cares about. God sovereignly made sure that Moses had that vantage point. In fact, at one point it says, you can hear the music. Moses, Moses can actually hear the music and the dancing of the people down there. So Moses is put by God in a particular situation on purpose to see the problems. I'll tell you this. I think that God still 
takes believers and puts them in a place to see problems. So Moses is put in a place to see the problem, but from that vantage point, he's also called, and this is, this is how we get the content that Moses talks about, he's called to reflect on the promises of an unchanging God. I see the problems, and I'm in that place by God sovereignly put to see them, but I'm also sovereignly called by God as his child to remember the character of our unchanging God. Real problems that are really happening. They're not a figment of my imagination. They're there. If God doesn't intervene, it's going to go ugly. If God doesn't change the course of direction, it's going to be ugly. I see it, and as I'm there, I not only see the problems, I also remember God's promises. And I think this is part of what the challenge is in prayer. In prayer, you're called not to just think about the problems. You're actually called to remember the God who says he's there with you and sees the problems and actually has the ability to do something about it. And we get to remember that our unchanging God invites us by his sovereignty, has declared that we are called, actually ordered, we are to obey him and ask him to intervene in the problems that we see. So God wants Moses to pray and ask God for a change. God had put Moses in a situation so that he would see the problem, remember God's promises, and then petition God to change his course of action. And here's why, number three. Because our prayers are instrumental. Because prayer is the means God chose to unfold his plans. So think of a piece of paper that's folded over and on the inside the purpose The design will be revealed, but you unfold the paper and sometimes you unfold east to west and sometimes you unfold north to south on that axis. But what's really going on is God is revealing, even though the movements are shifting, his unchanging purpose. And the mechanism of the revealing, this is the part that gets lost, is our prayers. Now, if you are like me and a bit of an accountant or if you're an engineer type, And your mind is already blown because there's remainder here. I don't know how to fully square an unchanging purpose of God with changing plans and God asking me to pray to change his mind and to change the course of human history and to change the direction of an event. I can't square it all. I can just tell you that those three themes are consistently stated in the scripture and we're called upon to engage prayer as if we really believe it changes not just us, but things. And God seems to delight in our prayers as the mechanisms by which he changes direction. He doesn't always do it, but he does it a lot and he rarely does it without actual prayers. That's the testimony of scripture. But if you really want to press sovereignty here, let me just press it on you for just a second. The sovereign God reveals in his word that you and I as disciples are to pray to God and ask him to intervene. So for those of you that are high sovereignty people, that's enough. But if you need a little logic as well, here's the logic. When you pray, things actually change. That's just the truth. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe on the authority of scripture that your prayers actually matter? Do you take the instruction God gave his disciples, you and me, to pray serious enough to actually pray and ask God to intervene? Or have you just fell victim to a lack of discipline? But usually behind a lack of discipline, there's some underlying lie or stuckness. What's really going on? Years ago, a theologian by the name of A.A. Hodge, who taught at Princeton theological seminary and recall that all the great universities in our country largely started, almost all, about 98% of them, started as institutions so people could learn to understand the scripture better. So about in late 1800s, Archibald Alexander Hodge writes these words. Does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? I mean, if your day's already been appointed, quit eating, right? So then why do you eat? Here's why you eat. You eat to live. And what happens if you don't eat? 
you die. Then if you don't eat and you die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? You see the conundrum? So here's what he says, modified a little bit by me. Quit asking questions and just eat to live. You see how this works? Now, it's a metaphor. You press them any far, they always fall apart. But that's the whole point. We're supposed to just pray. Because eating is the preordained way that God has appointed people to live. And praying is the preordained, in the mind of God's wisdom, way that he has appointed for us to engage the ugliness of this world, the ugliness of your life, and the brokenness all around us. So God wanted Moses to ask so that he could sovereignly put him in a place. So God put him sovereignly in a place so that Moses would see the problem, remember God's promises, and then petition God to actually change things. So let me ask you, what does he put you in a position to see? So when you pray for God to change your marriage, he doesn't just change you. He does do that. And often that's the biggest part of what he does. But sometimes when you pray, he actually begins to stir in the middle of that. He changes the course and the direction. He unfolds his plan in a new way. Purposes is still the same. But your prayer triggers an activity in the mind of God because that's how God wanted it to be done. Anytime we rely on sovereignty as a reason to disengage prayer, we've bought a lie that was never intended to come to us because of the great comfort of the sovereignty of God. Yeah, God's in control. And the God in control told you to pray. He told you to talk to him and ask him to do things. So do it. So what you and I are supposed to talk or take away from this is that God has sovereignly placed you and me in certain situations precisely for the express purpose of our prayers. Praying his promises and asking him to change things. His plans, what we see, the impending outcome. And then because he is sovereign, we trust him at the end of the day to answer the prayers that he wants to answer in the time, in the time frame and in the mechanical way that he wants to answer them. So God, please employ your divine power and show up here. Wrestling with this is what ultimately gave me the confidence to walk into a hospital room where somebody was dying unless God intervened and asked God to intervene. I've told some of you this, you know this, but my, some of my first ministry experiences, I was in a very large church of a couple thousand people and we serviced 15 hospitals. And our role in our church was if anybody called the church and wanted somebody to come pray, we showed up and prayed. Now, that's not our policy here, all right? I can't maintain that. So I, my entire job was to go to hospitals. So on occasion, I would hit 50 hospital visits in a week. It drained me, exhausted me, and I had to deal with the theological conundrums that many of the people I'm going to pray with and ask God to show up, they're going to die. It happened over and over and over again. So I had to figure out a new way to think through, a new way for me. And I found the new way for me in the pages of Scripture and in the pages of the writing of great men and women of God over the years that I trust and ask God for whatever I believe he wants to do. And I trust and I look to the God who's only going to bring about the good that he wants to bring when I do it. So I boldly ask God to raise people up. I do. I boldly ask God to save marriages. I boldly ask God to make financial resources show up where it doesn't seem likely and I trust God to do what he wants to do with it. But somehow I've discovered a truth of scripture that I want to simply state to you, that I've seen God show up more when I pray than when I don't. And for me, that's enough. You do what you need to do. But whatever it is that's keeping you from praying three to five minutes a day consistently as a disciple as you were commanded to by your Lord and Savior, that's what you're going to have to figure out. And I want to tell you that while you're figuring it out, go ahead and start praying. And ask God, God, did you put me in this situation to see that problem? If you did, I'm going to remember the promises of God that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And you, God, care more than I do. So I'm just going to ask you to show up right there and intervene and do what you want to do. And I'm going to trust you to do it right. But I'm going to tell you what I think. And I'm going to ask you to do it. I'm going to stand like Moses in between you and the mess of this world and ask you, God, to not simply operate in your justice, which you're perfect, perfectly free to do. But I'm going to ask you to show up in mercy. I'm going to ask you to show up with grace. And I'm going to ask you to show up and accomplish your purpose in this moment and beyond this moment. Because I believe, God, you made it clear that prayer was the thing that would move your hand. 
So you're not just up there doing things. You've asked me to be a part of it. And even though I don't understand it all and I have some long division with remainders, I'm going to not give in to fatalism with prayer. I'm actually going to talk to you. There's this beautiful picture from the book of Revelation I want to share with you. I didn't get a chance to share with first service because I talked too long about other things. Happens a lot around here. Revelation chapter 3. The Bible gives us this big picture. On the day when God begins to wrap everything up, the Bible says that in heaven, this is an image, there are these bowls. And these bowls are the prayers of the saints that have been gathered over years. So everything you pray for goes in these bowls. And when the Lord begins to wrap it all up and he begins to make everything right, here's what the Bible says, that the angel of the Lord comes and begins to empty these bowls. So all these things that have been contained, unanswered, not worked with, seemingly undealt with, seemingly unanswered prayers, that ultimately in the grand purpose of God, everything that God wanted to get done is going to get done. There's no wasted prayer at all. It's all there. And the mechanics by which he begins to bring the ultimate good to the earth as he wraps everything up, as he begins to pour these prayers out. Can you see the image? That's the image that we're given. Oh, your prayers matter. They matter. My prayers matter. Three to five minutes a day, I'm telling you, 300 times this year. Three to five minutes of prayer offered 300 times this year can radically change not only your heart, but I believe it'll begin to change the world around you. Now, on your message notes, I left you some spots for some unanswered prayers. I'm not going to deal with those this week. I'm going to pick up there next week. I've added an extra week to this series. It's kind of gotten in my, my heart in a big way, and i got some other things I want to tell you about next week too. But I want to challenge you to trust the God who asked you to pray. And if you've laid something on the shelf that you still think God should work in because you're a little frustrated, tired, not sure if it's making a difference, pick it back up, be an obedient child and take it to God and ask him to show up and do the thing. And if there are things you haven't yet begun to pray about, but you should be, pick it up and ask God to do his good purpose however he wants. It could be that he has put you right in the place you are to see the exact problem that you see. So would you do this? Would you grab out your connect card? And let's take a few steps together now as a congregation. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you don't yet have a relationship with the God who invites you to talk to him, who has all the power and all the control, and he wants a relationship with you. The Bible says that if you'll trust the work that Jesus did and not yourself, you can have a relationship with your heavenly father. It goes like this, Jesus, I can't save myself, but you gave your life on the cross. You were resurrected from a borrowed tomb. And I trust that work that you accomplished on my behalf to save me. I trust in that alone. The Bible says with that simple realization and declaration, you can have a life with God. You move from the category of dead to live, from alienated to part of the family, just like that. If you're feeling stirred, that's not my words. That's the Holy Spirit prompting. We'd ask you to take the pen, check next step A, and in a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God and do some business and pray and ask him to save you. Or next step B, today I want to be baptized. If you have questions about baptism, want to be baptized, you just sign or check this box, put it in the offering bucket, and a member of our team will be in touch with you and get things rolling. Answer your questions. Decide if it's right for you. The next one coming up is February 9th. Next step C is the first step we started with this year. It says, I'll set aside three to five minutes a day to pray. Three to five minutes a day. A certain time, a certain place, a certain plan. Make an appointment. As soon as the kids go to sleep at night, just before I get in the shower, just before I check my email, three to five minutes a day. Our next step D, please sign me up for the small group. This is what Pastor Melissa earlier told you about. There in your message notes, transfer the number next to next step D. I'm asking a lot of the adult room to consider freedom. There are other great groups as well. The next step E says, please send me the RSVP for the grow classes. The next one is January 26th. It's grow four. It's revealing your mission. So we talk about how God has called you and what he's equipped you to do. And we don't tell you what that is. We help you discover it. And we'll give you a meal and provide some child care as well. Just check the box. We'll send it all to you. Why don't you set that aside? And if you call this church home, I want to give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. Uh, this week, I heard a great story that I want to share because as it was shared with me, it just made me think about you. And one of the reasons I'm grateful to be a part of this church 
This young lady was talking about the fact that when she was younger, her little brother heard the ice cream truck coming by. And when he heard the ice cream truck coming by, as kids often do, they're like, I want some ice cream, right? Well, he didn't have a way to make money. He didn't have any money. So he goes to his sister, who was a little older, had some money, and says, I want some money for some ice cream. So she slips him some money and says, go get some ice cream. Bring me back my change. He's like, oh, you're so awesome, sis. So he goes, he gets the ice cream, he comes walking back. He's got the ice cream in hand, and the sis says, where's my money? He's like, what do you mean? Like the change. And he says, wait, that's my money. She's like, no, it's my money. I just gave it to you to get your need. And it made her think, it made me think about, this is sometimes what we do with God. I don't know if you know this or not, but theologically, everything you have ultimately came on loan to you from God who is gracious and good. It's all his. So he gives you some, and he says, do what you want to do with it. Go get an ice cream. And then for his children, he simply says this, I want some of it back. I don't want it all back. I want some of it back. So she was talking about this story and I was watching people reflect on this story. I thought about the privilege I have of being a part of a church where a lot of you get this. You know that your resources are given to you by God to manage and you consistently, regularly give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. You know how good you are at this? You have more faith than I do, by the way. I'm humbled by this. We passed uh, $85,000 in our Christmas offering this week. Isn't that, thank you, Lord, for that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, you can clap. It's okay. So I told our members, the real goal I have in my heart is 90. I don't have that much faith, so I'm gonna tell the congregation 80. And then you did it too easy, and I'm like, golly, Lord. One day, maybe I'll grow up and be the man of God you call me to be. But we're, we're like, we're inching in. So if you wanna give the Christmas offering, write Christmas on your gift, go to the kiosk, write Christmas. We'll shut this down right as February opens up. And who knows, maybe we'll hit the 90 and the Lord will just one more time teach me. I got a long way to go. But at the end of the day, I'm grateful for you. I'm so grateful. And we're gonna do great ministry with it. Next week, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that. And then we're gonna talk a little bit more about prayer. And then we're gonna kick off our year in earnest of ministry with prayer in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you for that. Let's pray right now about our next steps in our offerings. Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord that you have invited us to talk to you as if our prayers change things because they do. This is your design plan. God, I, I repent that I so often need it all to make perfect sense to me before I start to obey. But what you've actually invited me to do is to start walking and trusting and then you would grow my trust and my understanding as I do. So I thank you, Lord, for your patience, even with something so awesome as prayer. And I pray, Lord, that this year we would be a congregation marked by prayer. We'd be disciples marked by prayer. And in that, Lord, we would see your spirit show up and you would sovereignly work in the spheres of our lives, in our marriages, in our finances, in our communities. God, do your work. And now, Father, would you take our gifts and our next steps and cause them to accomplish great things for you. And Lord, I lift up every man and woman declaring Jesus wash away my sins. I trust the work you did for me on the cross and in your resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. Thank you, Jesus. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.